0: Thank you Laurel I, I'm trying to get uh, passages from the Old Testament that that correspond to what we'll be looking at in the book of Mark so uh, and I hope that kind of resonates when we come to the book of Mark in this story let's pray together first father this morning we take time to seek communion with you from uh, the noises of them around us, and and we come into this room to look for refuge, look for quiet, look for uh, a place that's that's uh, safe. That we uh, move away from uh, the voices that maybe are, are too much praise for us or too much blaming of us, uh, too much confusion around, and our own imagination just kind of runs wild of our own heart. Father, we want to turn our side from all of that for this uh, this time while we're here, to fix our eyes on you, to ponder ponder the patterns of our lives. Um, We ask that you, that fall on us this morning, a sense of your power, uh, an understanding of your holiness, a vision of your beauty. Father, like Israel, from the psalm that uh, we learn to be content by trusting you, that we be content to give you our all and our life, that we are content to rest in your care. And Father, help us to leave uh, what is yours to do, for you to do, and not take it on ourselves. Help us to know the difference as we learn to live in trust and faith and hope. That will produce a body, a congregation of love and unity. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We are going to be looking at the last story in chapter 4 with a big question at the end. Who is this? Who is this man? Um, We we all have fears that we live with. Uh, Some are kind of rational. Some are very logical. We understand that uh, we get scared. We get numb. We get terrified. We get despair. Um, but some of our fears, of course, are irrational, are not really that clear, but we still have them anyway. And I don't know if you, you know, have you ever seen um, Jimmy Fallon? I don't know if he still does this or not. I don't really watch the show, but I catch his stuff on YouTube sometimes. And he used to send out these, these hashtags on Twitter on different topics, and people would send in uh, responses like uh, my, my weird roommate or my weird Thanksgiving tradition or whatever. Well, he sent one out a few years ago, Uh, called my irrational fear and uh, it's it's probably been five years or so and I saved it on my computer because I thought someday this might come in handy (laughs) and it does and I just want to share a little bit with you share uh, some of them with you Uh, one person writes in I've always been afraid of birds flying indoors outside's fine inside they only have one place to go beak first into my eyes Uh, when I lived alone and would come home at night, I would throw open the door and yell, NYPD, before I walked in. But I lived in Dallas, so. <laughs> uh, when I have to pop open one of those Pillsbury biscuit tubes, I'm so afraid that they'll explode that I find the longest spoon I can, stand really far away, and whack at it. Uh, I brush my hair out. I don't brush my hair outside because I'm scared the hairs will somehow end up at the scene of a crime and I'll be blamed for it. Uh, Whenever I go to a restaurant, I always wait for my friends to start eating first, just in case the food is poisoned. That is a little irrational. Uh, I love this one. I never shower while it's storming because I'm afraid I'll get zapped by lightning coming through my shower head. I just don't want to die naked. And this one, whenever I get pulled over, I start panicking that there might be drugs in the car, even though I've never even used drugs. And, and that one I can kind of relate to. Uh, every time we would cross the border into the States and have to deal with uh, border guards, and they had this German Shepherd or dog, you know, going around your car to sniff for drugs, and you're always thinking, gosh, did somebody plant drugs on me when I was in Matewala or whatever, you know? And you always have this kind of fear that they're going to find it, but of course they never do. But, but anyway... <clears throat> We do have fears, and some are irrational, and we can't help but imagining the worst is going to happen, and sometimes the worst does happen, and part of the reason, I think, because of fear, that one of the foundation or one of the primary factors is fear is the reason we live such fragmented lives, and our lives and our, our personal lives are fragmented, our our, our nation is fragmented, the globe is, tra- is fragmented, even local fragmented, even in families. I mean, the, the arguments at Thanksgiving are cliche now because uh, there are so many of them. And we, we get this feeling that the forces are so just legion and so intense out there that sometimes just the clinging to the little bit of a hope just doesn't make sense. And even when we're told to exercise prayer, sometimes that seems to be just a, a senseless exercise, that um, it just doesn't make any, many, any sense at all. And the thing is, we, we can't get away from that. It's just part of our culture, it's part of our life, and I think it's foundational to so much of the, the stuff that's going on, the rage, the outrage, and, and the fighting and the polarization, I think is mainly based in fear. Um, And it doesn't feel like, and it feels like all this stuff is senseless and it just doesn't make sense. But Mark doesn't leave us with that kind of futility. Um, He's introduced us to this person of Jesus Christ. And the very first sentence, the very first verse of the book is saying, This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he spends the rest of the book telling us who this person is and why it makes a difference. And he, he's, in the first few chapters, we see him getting baptized, getting this voice from heaven saying, this is my son, you know, listen to him. We see him uh, fighting the opposition. We see him healing. We see that he's teaching in the shores, in the houses, and in the synagogues. And then in chapter 4, we finally get to this teaching, and what he is teaching is this kingdom of God. And that it is coming, and that, that it is launched, that it is God's kingdom is ruling, and it, this is how it's going to grow. And interesting enough, he doesn't use political metaphors. He doesn't use military metaphors. He uses agriculture metaphors to tell about how this kingdom is going to be launched and how it's going to be grown. That it's grown through seeds being sown and then flourishing and causing a, 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 a harvest of a 30, 60, 100 times a harvest in the, in the seed growing. It's kind of this agricultural metaphor. And then in the last part, then he goes on to say it's like the, the farmer who sows the seed, and then every night he goes to bed, and in the morning he gets up, and he does this routinely, routinely, and suddenly the crop appears. He doesn't know how. He doesn't know how, how it happened. It just happens. And he tills the soil, and he makes it great, and he makes it as fertile as it can be, but he doesn't really understand how that happens. And then he says that the kingdom of God is like this little mini, mini mustard seed, the tiniest thing. But when it's planted, it becomes this big shrub to where even the birds are nesting in it and finding refuge in it. And he said, this is how the kingdom is going to happen. This is how God becomes king. Totally different than what we think about it when we think how God is going to become king. Totally, totally different. Dallas Willard explains God's kingdom as the place where what God wants done is done. And that is going to be happened in this sort of agricultural harvest kind of way and he'll go on to explain other ways too but this i love this picture of this is how the kingdom works that it's not even using political language or military language or even religious language he uses agricultural language so we're going to look at this story at the end of this at right on the heels of that teaching is the story where he's calling the disciples and they're getting ready to go into enemy territory But before they get there, they go through a storm. And the men come out radically changed. So that's the story. It's a famous story we're going to look at this morning. And before they get there, he kind of gives them this this object lesson. And this paragraph just has three questions in it that we're going to be looking at. And we're going to be looking at the first section, verses 35 to 37, that sometimes the world just overwhelms us. So I'm I'm going to read the story in piecemeal. On the day the evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's go across to the other side of the lake. So after leaving the crowd, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat, and the other boats were with him. Now a great windstorm developed, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was nearly swamped. So they're getting ready to go into enemy territory. He says, We're going to go across the lake. And let me show this to you really quickly. This this takes takes on more significance in chapter 5. But that's kind of how the the area was divided up. Herod the Great was the king. He was the guy, you know, when Jesus was born, that killed all the innocents and stuff. And and when he died, they divided up the kingdom into four areas. There was a territory of his sons, Herod, Archelaus, Herod, Antipas, and Philip, and then his sister Salome. And they kind of divided that up. So what I'm trying to get at here is that they're going from Galilee, okay, which is under Herod Antipas, and they're crossing over to the sea into the Gentile world. They're going into enemy territory. They're going into the land of the unclean. And just what hap- what's happening here is they are going to spread the seed everywhere. You remember the story of the sower. They're spreading it everywhere. And some of it lands with thorns. Some of it lands on rocks. Some of it lands on fertile soil. Some of it lands... Uh, it, you know, is eaten up by Satan, taken by Satan immediately. But they're going to be sowing this, and they're going to enemy territory. And so, it's almost like Jesus is providing this object lesson for them before they get there. And this storm rises, and there's a lot of Old Testament imagery here, because in the Old Testament, the chaos of the oceans that was sort of symbolic for the chaos of the Gentile world and the Gentile rulers. And so the, the ocean and the, and the storms in the ocean in the, the sea, they kind of become metaphors, pictures of what the Gentile, the enemy territory was like. And this is where they're headed. This is where they're going. But on their way, a crisis hits. An opposition of a storm. And this isn't just a few, you know, rough waters. This is a, this is a, a, a mega storm. In fact mark uses the word where we get mega it is a mega storm it is huge where the boats are swamped and the boats are rocking and they're afraid of dying and this story is so well known that when we kind of read it even when a preacher like me reads it it almost comes across as sort of a mon- monotone sort of we kind of know the story and uh, you know we got to get the idea that you know one of the disciples is going over going you know, excuse me, I hate to interrupt your, map, your nap here, but uh, we're kind of in trouble here. You know, you got any ideas? That's kind of the thing. That's not it at all. When I see it in my imagination, it is screaming. I mean, it, they are sinking. And I don't know if you've ever been in a boat in a storm, uh, but I have once. Once we were on the, uh, with some friends, a couple of friends from college, we were on Toledo Bend Ra- Lake Reservoir. Uh, it borders kind of Louisiana, and we were out in one of the. we call them John boats, just those little metal boats, you know, with the little outboard motor that you're kind of guiding around and stuff, and there are three of us in the boat, and one of those storms came up. And let me tell you, it is frightening. You're trying to fight the waves. You're trying to get back to the shore in that little boat, and it is scary. And I don't know if you've ever been into a Texas or Iowa thunderstorm. They are impressive. and. Sue and I actually miss them. <laughs> We're kind of nostalgic about them. We kind of like them. Uh, you're sitting in the house with a book, and the, and the water is you know, it's hitting the windows, and it's thundering and lightning, and you just kind of feel cozy inside, and it's really kind of nice, except when you hear the tornado sirens. Then it gets scary. Or if you're out on a boat at Toledo Bend Lake when the storm comes up, then it gets scary. This is what they're at. And this is kind of the imagery that they're headed toward this Gentile territory, and they're seeing this Gentile symbol of rough waters before they get there. The obvious Old Testament referral here is Jonah. Jonah, too, was called to go preach in a Gentile world. But instead, he goes the other direction, gets in a boat. There's also a storm, and he sleeps. They wake him up, and his solution is to throw him overboard, okay? But in the story of Jesus, they keep going, and this is a little bit of a foreshadowing of what's going to be happening in the rest of the book, because we're going to see this storm right here, and it's kind of a launching into the ministry of Jesus as he goes throughout And we see the disciples struggling with their faith, and we'll see that through the rest of the book. I think five more times Jesus could have rebuked them for lack of faith. But here is the beginning, and it begins to start right here. And in my imagination, in verse 35, he says, But he was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. This is literally a pillow for his head. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we are about to die? Like I said, they didn't mention that. He didn't just pass by Says you got any ideas? He is yelling, don't you care? Don't you care? This is a mega storm. We are going to die. Don't you care? And I think what I get from this is that this fear of the disciples drive, him, drive them to Jesus. And I'm thinking, well, if that's what fear does, that's not a terrible thing. It drove them to Jesus because anxiety and fear are just simply part of being human. And he gets up and he speaks and he calms the storm. He gets up and rebukes the wind and says to the sea, be quiet, calm down, and the sea calms down. And it's really interesting that he uses the same adjective here. This was a mega storm, and now Jesus provides a mega calm, mega tranquility. Just with his voice, he does that. And so the first question that we see in this passage is, don't you care? Don't you care that we're dying here? And then Jesus asked them this question. Why are you so cowardly? <laughs> Why are you so timid? Where, where's your faith? And it's kind of a little bit of a rebuke. And also in my mind, I, I, get, I get this picture of maybe, the, maybe John, the disciple John is with Jesus, laying there you know, by, by Jesus. You know, and and he's, he, he's the one shouting at you, Don't you care we're dying? And then the storm, the calm, the storm calms, and uh, Jesus says, you know, why are you acting so cowardly? And I hear Peter, you know, at the, either with the sails or at the bow of the boat yelling out, you know, what did he say? And John says, why are you acting like babies? And I can imagine Peter going, are you kidding me? <laughs> Does he not know what just happened? But this is, what, this is what he says. He says, it's just, why are you so timid? Why are you so timid? Where is, where is your faith? It's not that, that this was too hard for them. And I don't think what Jesus is getting at here is that, that just to solve a storm. He never does these miracles. He never does these things just to impress people. There's always a point behind it. And what I get from this is not this ridicule. I get this little bit of faith of at least going to Jesus with the issue, and then you get a lot of grace, and you end up with mega calm. You get just a little bit of faith. Don't you care what's going on with me? And then you get the voice of Christ, and you get calm. And I don't think it's going to always end up this way, but I do think that the voice of Christ does bring calmness does bring us rest and I don't think we should be too hard on the disciples because I would have reacted the exact same way I know I would maybe even worse I would have done the same thing and sometimes we do let the fear get the better of us and sometimes it does dominate us and sometimes we even nurture it and kind of care for it but if it drives us to Jesus it's not that bad. It's okay. And I think this prayer is okay. And I think we have to decide where is the fear pushing us? Is the fear going to push us to Jesus? Or is it going to push us to rage and outrage? Is it going to push us to bring the covers over our head? Is it going to push us to withdraw, to insulate ourselves? Or is it going to push us and drive us to Jesus? And I think Mark leaves these two things together, this fear and faith. We, wanna, we like, Americans like to quantify everything. Well, how much fear does it take? You know, How much fear do I need to have or how much fear is too much? And how much faith is, is enough? How much faith do I have? Mark doesn't go there. He just leaves the two by side by side, fear and faith, and that's where they are. You don't have to worry about who much, how much is what. Just there it is. And when you think about it, that's exactly how we experience it. That's exactly how we experience fear. We have the fear, but we also have the faith, maybe even just a little bit. And we may be frightened. We may be frightened because we don't want to be alone. We may be frightened because we're not sure our children are going to make the right decisions. We might be frightened because of the, the call from the doctor. We might be frightened for the state of, uh, of the church or whatever. But Jesus just asks us to do the same thing. And then we go to him and say, don't you care? And I don't think he's offended. He may say, come on, I'm here, I'm here. I think what he's telling us is that if we're going to decide to follow Christ, it doesn't mean that we are promised a life of security. That if we are following Christ, we can expect a life of insecurity, in fact. We can expect a life that's full of risk. And I think that's what we see here. The resurrection is the last thing that Jesus does to bring harmony to creation. And that's what he's doing here. He is bringing harmony to the creation in this moment. Now, it's easy for us to automatically go, See, I think we we passed this, yeah, Sometimes we, all we have left in us is this cry of desperation. And I think that's okay. I think that's perfectly fine. It's easy for us to go here immediately and, and uh, say this is, uh, this is about the deity of Christ. And yes, it's here. I'm not saying it's not. But I think what Mark is getting at here, what Mark wants us to see, is that this is a fulfillment of prophecy this is what jesus is going to do this is what it looks like when god becomes king this is what it looks like when god is in present with us and i think what mark is is wanting us to understand is that this man who transcends the world he is still intimately involved in it this man of great power this man of great power and yet he is in the midst of our mundane needs our mundane storms that this God who is transcends this is still in the midst of where we are wherever that is but the storm will almost always change us one way or another and that's what it does to the men with Jesus in verse 30, 41 he says they were terrified, and they asked each other, "Who is this?" Even the wind and the waves obey him. The word that's used here for the fear of the disciples is different than the word Jesus used to ask them if they have any faith. When he asked them if they had faith, he says, "Why are you afraid?" He said, "The idea is, why are you so timid? Uh, why are you acting so timidly here?" But the word used here is they had great fear. The word here is they're freaking out. The one, they were just kind of shy and cowardly a little bit, but now they're freaking out. And it's the same adjective. You have a mega storm, you have a mega calm, and now you got mega fear. Mark uses that same word throughout the the paragraph. This is, they are in great fear. Why? Because they realize they're standing next to this person who has this power to bring harmony to the creation. This man who has great power, and any one of us who stands next to or sits next to a person like that, you can bet we would be afraid. You bet we would be freaking out. What is this person? Who is he? And this is the irony of it. This is the irony of it, that fearing God, when we fear God, we don't fear anything else. And when we don't fear God, we fear everything else. And this is the irony of having this awe of God, that when we all, when we stand in awe of this person, we don't have to fear anything else because the last thing that happens to us is not the worst thing. The last thing that happens to us in this life is not the worst. And if we fear God, if we stand in awe of him, of this person, Jesus Christ, then we don't have to fear anything. But if we don't fear him, then we fear everything. Everything else gets frayed. That The temptation, like I mentioned, is to focus in on the deity of Christ, but I really believe that he is telling us that this is, the, this is the vocation. This is how God is going to dwell with us. This is how God is going to advance his kingdom. This is how God launches his kingdom. And we see this prophesied in the Old Testament over and over from Exodus 14. When he talks about the prophet that's going to come. We see it in Isaiah 53 and 51. We see it in the Psalms that Laurel just read this morning in Psalm 70 and 107. We see this over and over again that this is what is going to happen. And what Mark is telling us here is this is, this is what's happening here. All those promises of God in the Old Testament, this is how it's going to be launched. And this is what it looks like, that he is going to bring harmony and creation And he will ultimately bring harmony even in the moment of death. But I want to say something that's maybe a little controversial here. And that is this. We can't depend on God to keep bad things from happening to us. We can't. God didn't keep bad things from happening to him. This is the fallen world we live in. But we do have his voice. We do have his voice that brings calm. And what we do have is this, this person who even though he transcends creation, finds himself in the midst of it. The one who, who is more powerful than the voices of the world is still in our mundane needs. And he's calling us And he's calling those original readers who were under persecution in Rome, and also the readers here in Shepherd of the Valley in the 21st century, he's calling us to reflect on that. That we may behave cowardly in a timid way, but if it drives us to Jesus, that's okay. That's perfectly fine. Jesus is not going anywhere. He is with us in every storm. And the more storms we have, the more we trust. And this is a lesson of trust. And so I'm going to just mention some principles for Christ followers that I found in this passage that I think, first of all, we get into the boat together. We get in the boat together as a family of God. We don't do it by ourselves. And I think this is the answer to our fragmented lives, that we learn from each other. This is how we gain faith. This story is just not just about persevering. It's about putting faith and hope together. And what I mean by that belief and hope is that we believe one thing, but we also have confidence in the destiny. We have confidence in the outcome. I I am convinced that Jesus was asleep in the stern of the boat because he didn't care about the outcome. He trusted the Father so much He didn't care about the outcome. And we can believe and trust at the same time. And I think together we do this and we learn from each other. I think fear, if it gets too much, if it gets too nurtured and too obsessed with fear, I believe that is the, the, founding, the foundational factor of the rage that we're seeing today. Of the anger we're seeing today. And I think fear is the great enemy of true intimacy that when we fear we will either be outraged or we cling to someone else in an unhealthy way and think that that person is going to save us but together we understand that we drive each other and move each other back to Christ this is the way we avoid this this hyper-individualism that we're experiencing today. That we get in the boat together, and together we go from a mega storm to to hearing the voice for the mega calm, and then we have this mega freaking out kind of thing. But we know that he is with us. The second thing is trust is learned by experience. In other words, it's participatory learning we don't learn these things, I wish we could I wish we could learn them without experiencing them but we can't we have to learn them by experiencing it it's just the way it is I can read a book I can read a theology I can read you know some of my favorite authors and go yeah I agree with that I agree with that but until I'm in the position to need it I don't really learn it I don't really know it I don't know how to trust until I need to trust. I don't know how to hope until I need to hope. It may be in my head, but it's not here until I experience it. And I wish it wasn't that way sometimes, but it is. And that's how we learn it. That's how we learn to look with other people in our congregation that are going through terrible diagnosis and and, and fearing. Uh, medical reasons, that that we learn from them, we learn with them, and we experience it with them, and we learn how to do this. And I I look at single friends who really want a life partner, and we learn how to handle that when we're with them and we suffer with them. You know, I I learn, I'm just going to, didn't ask her about this, but I'm going to use my wife as an example, I learn how to, to somebody that's lost so much in a short span of time. You know, a brother, a mother, and a father, a kid off to college, a ministry, a job, a, a, a home, a friends all within a span of three years. I learned how to do that and learn how to trust because of that by watching, by watching her, by watching each other. It is participatory. That's how we learn. Abandoning ourselves to the will of God is the path to freedom from fear. Like I said, he didn't promise us a life of security. He doesn't promise us a life without risk. But really, abandoning ourselves to the will of God is the only way to learn this. It's the only way to have freedom from fear. That Jesus can sleep in the boat because he doesn't care about the outcome and we can live without caring about the outcome, the ultimate outcome, because the last thing is never the worst thing. Number four, choose compassion over fear. We choose compassion over fear. I, um, I feel like that a lot of the church has got this backwards, that we fear, we choose fear over compassion and we think that other things are going to protect us. We think that uh, our institutions will protect us. Others think, no, our cynicism about the institutions will protect us. Uh, Our patriotism will protect us. A candidate will protect us. A law will protect us. A gun will protect us. All these things will protect us. This is the only way we choose compassion over fear. He's the only one that we need to depend on. And number five, the prayer, don't you care, may be the only prayer we're capable of uttering. And that's okay. If the only thing that we're able to verbalize to God is don't you care, that's okay. Because it's driving us to the right person. He brings a mega calm. And in my opinion, that may be the only reasonable response we have, regardless of what's going on in our lives, is don't you care? And Jesus will respond. His voice will bring calm. So lots of people in our congregation are um, scared and unsure and numb, uh, including me. Uh, the media doesn't help. The who's, they, they want to tell us who's going to protect us. Not, not going to help us. Not going not gonna to help us at all. And I, it's easy for me to get numb over this. It's, it's easy for us to, to go other places, to food or booze or sex or Amazon Prime or whatever, to numb us from all this. But <clears throat> we're only afraid of death if we don't know who we are. And if we know who we are, then we've already received our inheritance. If we know who we are, that we're the child of God, we've already received it ahead of time. And we don't need to worry about that. (laughs) St. Francis said that the only people who don't fear death are the ones who have died the first time by giving their life to Christ, by dying to Christ. And then they don't have to worry about the second time. Those are the ones who don't have to worry. We are are bookend with mortality. We are born and we will die. And we do not have absolute safety. We're not guaranteed any of that. Uh, We can't depend on God to, to keep us from bad things from happening to us. But Mark tells us a story. He tells us a story about God dwelling with us. He tells us a story about God in the flesh coming in a time that's more violent and more unsure than our time. And He is there. And He's calling us to get into the boat with Him. And it'll be okay. It'll be alright. There may be mega storms, but there will be a mega calm that comes with His voice. There'll be mega catastrophes but there will be mega tranquility that comes with his voice. And he is moving history toward glory. And this glory will outweigh anything that the storm can bring. And I think if there's one takeaway from this whole story, it's simply this that this man who transcends the created world has chosen to be intimately involved with us. This man who who is the power who will bring, bring harmony to, to, to all creation is in the midst of our mundane needs and our daily storms. And I think that's my takeaway from this story, that in spite of the storm, we're in the boat with Jesus and his voice can bring calm and bring tranquility even when we're in enemy territory, even when we're headed toward enemy territory, we have calm because of the voice of Christ. And he is with us. We can be fearful. We can be scared. But if all we can say is, don't you care? If it drives us to Jesus, that's okay. That's okay. Father, we thank you for this story that's so well-known that we sometimes blow it off and take it as some sort of really fancy miracle. But, Father, we want it to be real for us, and I want it to be real for us as we learn to trust you and we know that our destiny is in your hands. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. Amen.